this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by Industrial Device Investments. One of the ways to sell your business is through a minority or majority recapitalization. What's that? Well, it's where a private equity group or PE firm buys your business. You get to take some of the money off the table and keep your job running your company as CEO and shareholder. Now, the problem with a lot of these so-called PE deals is that the investor not always, but in many cases, is a money guy or gal with no clue how to run a business. And that's why industrial device investments is so different. They are operators, just like you, and they understand what it takes to build a business. The firm was founded by a guy named John Dalton. Look him up on LinkedIn. He's an engineer and spent years at GE and Black & Decker before becoming a full-time investor. Here's the thing. You want maximum value for your business and a bright future for your employees. And that's where Industrial Device Investments comes in. They speak your language, not the jargon of the finance guys. And they invest their own money and don't answer to outside shareholders. An interesting option for sure. Visit idinvest.net to find out more. That's idinvest.net. Check them out. You know, when you break it all down, there's really two potential acquirers for your business. There's the financial buyer who buys your future stream of profit, and they're going to spend more for your business if you can prove that your future stream of profit is likely to grow and it's very reliable. And then there's the strategic buyer. And so the strategic buyer is buying what your business is worth in their hands. They've got some strategic assets that they can leverage to make your business worth more to them than it might be to you. And that's the situation that Judith Nowlin focused or found herself in. She started iBirth, which was an application for moms or expecting moms who wanted to kind of uh, get coaching and and knowledge about what the next uh, few trimesters was going to look like. Well, she sold her business to a company called BabyScripts. And BabyScripts also had a model of helping moms, but they went through physicians and OBGYNs. And so Judith had the direct to moms channel and content figured out, but Baby Scripts wanted that piece to add to their equation. And as Judith does a great job describing, it really is the quintessential strategic acquisition. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Judith Nowlin. Judith Nowlin. Welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks so much, John. Great to be here. Tell me about the genesis of iBirth. I understand this was an application for new moms or expectant moms. Tell me about it. That's right. So I built iBirth from the ground up from an idea that came out of my boots on the ground work uh, as a healthcare educator birth doula, and postpartum doula. I was uh, working for families. Okay, I've heard of a doula. It's such a goofy, I can't even say it with a straight face. A doula, (laughs) what does a doula do anyways? Yeah, so a a doula is a non-medical labor assistant, essentially, pregnancy and labor assistant. So not responsible for the medical side whatsoever uh, throughout a woman's pregnancy, birth, and postpartum time. That's up to the physician, the OBGYN, 
right. the midwife, but a doula helps with informational, physical, and emotional support through pregnancy all the way throughout the entire labor and delivery process. And then a postpartum doula comes in to help with the transition into the home once the family has the newborn baby in arms. So you were you worked with, with moms and got them through the process of giving birth in the first few months after giving birth. Is that, that right? That's exactly right. That's exactly so, right. As an educator, they'd come into classes. You know, you can get the picture in your head, mom and dad, pillows under their arms. We're going to lay around. We're going to do some breathing, you know, learn yeah, how babies yeah, yeah, make yeah. their movement, all that great stuff. Uh, and then, and then accompanying them actually, you know, through all the blood, sweat, and tears, you know, for anybody who's, who's had a baby, you know, all that's involved there. Uh, and I, then- I don't want to get this any gorier than that. That's, that's, that's it. <laughs> Got it. Okay. All right, good. You get the picture. I get the picture. I don't need any more details. So how did the app come about? So you had all this knowledge, obviously, and these experiences. So how did you came to the idea to to build an app. Yeah. So I was building my business in all of that in the Boulder, Colorado area. And people start telling friends and family about it. Right. And I begin receiving phone calls from across state lines. So people started calling from Wyoming and Nebraska, and they'd say, Judith, I've heard about what you do. And I'd like to sign up, pay the money and come see you every week and drive three hours. And I say, oh, no, 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 no. Drive three hours through Colorado in the middle of February in your third trimester. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> Let's not do that. But tell me this, why are you calling me? And they say, well, you know, I, I heard about the transformative power of this and we don't have that where I'm from. Right. I don't I don't have access to that in the middle of Wyoming where I am. So I'm willing to drive three hours each direction to come and see you. And at that, I'd say, well, let me help you find somebody. I'll you know, I'll help you navigate and see if we can get somebody uh, who can help you out in your area. Um, But then as these calls started coming in more and more and more, I realized, oh, my gosh, ding, ding, ding. We've got a little bit of a problem here. And if there's anybody to solve the problem, I might as well be the one to solve it. So Judith, how did you decide to, so you obviously had this demand and and a lot of content to share. How did you decide to go with a mobile app versus kind of a website delivery model or some other sort of IP delivery model? Like how did you decide on, on an app? It was all about the timing. So 2008, 2009 was the year of there's an app for that, right? App Store is pretty much brand new. And everywhere you turn on the radio, on the internet, on the television set, there's an app for that. There's an app for that. There's an app for that back then. Got it. And how were you in the original days, how were you planning to monetize the app? Was it a was it a paid app that people would download? It was. So in the original days, when we first put it out, we put it out there on the marketplace that you're going to pay a one-time fee to download and have access to the app. Uh, it was a direct-to-consumer model. And we we said, you know, it, the price of a, a class and doula services is all these hundreds of dollars. You know, what is Four ninety nine to 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 purchase an app that's going to kind of be a a doula in your pocket kind of idea. Cool. So whatever Steve Jobs wasn't it? He said like a thousand songs in your pocket was the original iPad, and you're 
putting a doula in your pocket. Sorry. That's right. Yeah. And so how did the pricing model change over time? Did you move to subscription? Oh, boy. We played around with it like crazy because we realized that asking $4.99 at this time in the uh, evolution of the app economy was almost like asking for a million dollars from people. Uh, there were a lot of free apps that were coming out into the marketplace. And so we really played around with our pricing model uh, in so many different ways. We'd uh, put the app on sale and now it's 99 cents for a period of time. We tried uh, making the app such that it was a freemium model. So download for free and then pay a little bit to upgrade for certain features and functionality. We split part of the app off and uh, monetized that part of the app, a, a, a contraction timer through ad revenue. Uh, at that time, I couldn't figure out, uh, this was, this was, way back when, and the app economy was not well established. Now I think we've got really clear ideas on what subscription model app services look like. Uh, back then, that it wasn't well established. And for whatever reason, I wasn't coming up with, with the magic solution on how to monetize the app in a subscription model for our consumers. I love the contraction monitoring service. I think that's awesome. I like minutes between contractions. That's oh, great. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. So, so what did you end up landing on? Like, what was the ultimate business model that you had in place in terms of charge? I should not say char business model. I mean, char what did you end up charging for it over time? Well, so what we actually ended, uh, ended up on is we, we went direct to consumer. We tried all these methods to monetize it. And it, it, it really wasn't sticking. But the way that we were going to market was we were going to the people that we knew, quote unquote, our people, which were the physicians, the midwives, the nurses, educators, doulas. We were showing up at their conferences and saying, we've got an app that at that time it was called M Health, like mobile health. We've got an M Health app that we think your clients, your customers, your patients are really going to love. And by the way, not only they're going to love it, but it's going to help make your life easier as a clinician because everything they need to know about on these particular topics is right inside here in their back pocket 24-7. And so few years, we are going to these conferences and we had a great, great response. These folks were saying, absolutely, this is remarkable. We can't wait to tell our patient population about this, right? Our new moms and our new dads. And then the next year we'd show up and they'd say, we've been telling everybody and they love it. And wouldn't it be so cool if we could really make it our own? Wouldn't it be great if our phone numbers could be inside and our address could be inside and some of the information that we're telling our patients about could be inside of this app, at which again, I went ding, 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 ding. Okay, I'm, I see the light. Let's go ahead and transition the company from a, a B2C focused company, direct to consumer, and let's instead go B2B. Let's start selling a white labeled branded and customized version of this app product to those healthcare organizations who want to distribute it to their healthcare consumers, their moms and dads, as a benefit to uh, coming to, into their care. So what kind of healthcare uh, organizations are we talking about? Are we talking about like 
like birthing clinics, uh, hosp- like hospitals and offices that, that specialize in OBGYN or what, like yeah, OBGYN so clinics or? Yeah, I designed okay. the product such that it could scale from the largest of healthcare systems all the way down to individual practitioners and everybody in between. So that included not only those large healthcare systems that have many uh, birthing hospitals and OBGYN clinics across an entire geographical region, as well as individual hospitals who have just one site and freestanding birth centers and independent practice groups. And we even had uh, a handful of individual practitioners who who tried the product out uh, when we first launched B2B. And so what was the ultimate sort of business model? You charged in a business to business setting, you charged the healthcare provider. Did you charge them sort of a one-time fee or a per download or how, how how did that economic model work? Yeah. So what we landed on was a one-time implementation fee to get the product all wired up and out the door for them, as well as a annual recurring licensing fee. Got it. Got it. So you had that recurring revenue from the hospitals or the um, healthcare providers. Absolutely. Yep. That recurring revenue is absolutely key uh, to, to this whole story. Why do you say that? Well, when I first, you know, with the direct-to-consumer version of the app, we were charging a a one-time cost, right, per download. One time, uh, pay that fee, and you've got the program for the rest of your life as long as you would like it. And I brought that same line of thinking over into the B2B business, and I was course-corrected really quickly from my advisors who said, you, you do not want to go out with this with a one-time fee only because there are recurring costs that are associated with the upkeep, the development, the upkeep, the maintenance, the support of your software product. And therefore, you really do need that annual recurring licensing fee as a result of your software as a service business. I think before for these conversations with my advisors, I wasn't thinking of my company as a software as a service business. But it was only after that transition to B2B that I realized that's that's what we have here. This is actually a SaaS company. How did you finance the growth of iBirth? Oh, that's a great question. So it was bootstrap all the way. So essentially, I mean, in, when we just boil that down, it's at, in the early days, would come in and we'd put that $10 right back into the company in the development of the product. Next, $1,000 would come in and we'd put that $1,000 right back in. So how much did you have to initially seed the company with to get the first first version of the app sort of out there? Yeah, it's it's a very small amount. Uh, My original co-founder and I put in a total of $8,000. A total of $8,000. And was the co-founder someone that worked in the company or were they sort of a silent investor? Yeah. So my co-founder, she is to date one of my best friends in the whole wide world. Uh, But there was an interesting co-founder unfolding as many, many co-founder relationships do over the course of time as you start uh, building a company together. So she was a fellow educator and doula here in my area. And we, long before that day where I said, 
I've got an idea, iPhone app. We had been cooking up ideas about how to essentially scale all the good work that was unfolding in our face-to-face -face work with families. So we were thinking of all kinds of different ideas. Do we write a book? Do we make a video series? Do we start a website or a blog? Do you know, just really just ideating over and over and over again until that day when it, it just struck me, let's make an app. If we're talking about scale, Let's make an app and see how this goes. And so she, um, she and I did all of the original work together to bring the app to fruition and uh, put it out there into the marketplace. And we had an incredible time doing all of that work, uh, building it up and, and pushing it out the door. Uh, in fact, nine years ago this week. Uh, but as time wore on, and we got into the trying to figure out the business model, trying to figure out how it was going to be uh, sustainable in regards to the, the the financial side of this. And we got into the the marketing of the product. Uh, she turned to me and said, "You know what? I'm I'm not really all that enthused about this anymore." <laughs> And uh, because her her heart and her interests were calling her elsewhere, uh, she is an incredible philanthropist, and she does incredible work for women and families in the New York City area. And uh, she just felt like her talents would be better used there rather than behind uh, the glass screen of and staring at a spreadsheet all day. These kinds so of things. So how did you guys sort that out? Because she kicked in four grand. How did you kind of deal with extricating her from the business? Yeah. So it was one of those those talks that was it was a heart to heart where I looked at her and I said, I'm I'm sensing that you are really not in this anymore. I'm getting the feeling that you you it's it's almost like paining you or it's hurting you in a way um, to maintain participation. And she was like, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I said, you know, I, I just want to call a spade a spade. If this isn't working for you, that's OK. We're not going to try to force something that's not a good fit. So. I want to keep moving forward. I want to keep driving this business toward its success. And it's okay if you don't want to participate with me in that. And so then from, and she was like, oh, thank heavens. Yes. Woo. <laughs> you know, it, it is pre pretending like, uh, like this is working or trying to make it work when it's not, wasn't good for anybody, uh, myself included and her and, and the business at large. And so, uh, we just, we, we sat down at a table and said, what does this look like then to renegotiate our stake in the company? And we came to an agreement um, and, and renegotiated that equity stake, that something that felt good to her and something that felt good and right to me. And then we moved forward. And the most beautiful part of the whole story is that oftentimes when this kind of thing happens, um, I think that relations can, relationships can get really spoiled. Uh, and people can hold grudges and um, have have anger with one another and serious uh, issues that they've got to work through. The the beautiful part is that we were able to maintain our friendship and and create 
deeper, uh, more depth to what we had started by starting a business together, uh, the relationship continued to blossom and grow even more from there. So how did you guys sort out the percentage of the business that you were going to keep? And because you were now doing all the work, I, I assume. That's right. And and I assume should have been given the lion's share of the sweat equity. And by the way, Judith, this happens all the time, right? So co-founders, one realizes, wow, this is way more work than I thought. And they bail. And there's this awkward situation. It's like, okay, well, like you can't have half the equity if you're not doing half the work. Uh, so how did, like, what advice would you give to another co-founder couple that is trying to to kind of decouple, conscious decoupling. Yeah. Uh, like, how do you value the company? And like, do they walk away from their investment? Like, what's what's what advice would you give someone going through this? Yeah, at that time, so that we had not made that B2B pivot yet, right? Um, so so it was really after that conversation that I took the bull by the horns and and made that full B2B pivot. So at that time, we were looking at, you know, how do you value the company? Right? What's the valuation? And and boy, we were it was it wasn't we were coming up with a whole lot of nothing, right? And so we said, let's let's take a step back and evaluate where where we think we're going, where we think this is headed, and what it's going to take to get there. And let's consider the amount of work that we've done to date. What is what is that amount? Right? What percentage of the total overall work toward that larger end goal have have you shared in? Did did you participate in? Right, and and that's how we got to our number. So historically speaking, so I mean, I know you can't say exactly what the proportions were, but let's assume that leading up to that conversation, you had put in sixty percent of the work, and she had put in forty percent. Then going forward, you'd own sixty, she'd own forty. Is that the kind of way you 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 sought it off, or did you look at? And going forward, I'm going to put in 100% of the work. You're going to put in zero. And so I should get more than 60, 40. Like, That's did you think it's about the, the future? Yeah, it was okay. all you, the future. It was all okay. the future. That's right. I see. I see. Okay. Got it. That's helpful. That's helpful for sure. So you make this pivot. How big did you get this business, Judith, before you decided that you were going to sell it? Yeah. So after the pivot, so before the pivot, pivot was about four years, give or take, that it was that direct to consumer model and we we're trying to figure it out. And then after the pivot, it was about four years, give or take, uh, until the point where I did go ahead and make the decision to sell it. And uh, in that four years, we were able to build a platform product that was truly software as a service that would meet the needs of those largest healthcare systems all the way down to the smallest ones, everybody in between. And we were uh, able to get uh, healthcare customers uh, in 14 states around the nation. Fantastic. So these are healthcare providers. How many downloads did you get to? Yeah, overall, in total, we were able to impact nearly 1 million families with our with our iBirth product. And what's interesting is way back when we started, uh, Amanda, my co-founder and I, we were sitting around her kitchen table, uh, putting the product together, doing product development and uh, content curation and design work, all of these great things. And we'd sit around with our, our cup of chai and our dark chocolate and was often- How did after... I know it was going to be chai and dark chocolate? <laughs> did you know that? <laughs> well, I don't know. Dude, like, come on. It wasn't going to be like rye and, you know, a cigar. <laughs> oh, gosh. 
full. It was chai and dark chocolate. We have a favorite right. chai that's born out of Boulder, Colorado, where we are here. And and we would, and these these moments, they were almost like, when I look back on my life to date, these are purely magical moments where she and I, we have seven kids between us, right? So we're building this software product when we've got all these little kids, we've got husbands who travel for work. So, and we are so dedicated and so crazy about making this work despite all the challenges, despite the fact that neither of us have a, a technology background, neither of us have a software background, right? Um, and we and were so crazy to make this this work that most times we would get together to do our work after we put the children to bed. So oftentimes I'd drive over to her house, I'd bed my children down at her house while her children are in bed, and then we'd get to work. Now, I remember so clearly some of those moments around that table saying to each other, do you, do you think anybody's going to like this? Do you think anybody's going to want this? Is this going to be useful? Well, there's no telling until we do it and put it out there. I mean, we think based on all our market research that, that it is, but really we, we don't know until we get it out there. And we'd say, if honest to goodness, for all this work that we're doing, if it impacts one family towards a better outcome, a positive outcome for themselves and their child, then mission accomplished. We've done well. We've done well. And so at the end of the day, when we were able to say, we've impacted almost 1 million families with what we built. I mean, it's, it's, it's glorious, honestly. I mean, obviously it, it's impacted a lot of people and it, it far exceeded what, what, you thought in those late night sessions with with Amanda for sure. It's incredible to think about it in that in that regard. Did you did you dream about with Amanda? Did means you guys talk about selling it one day? Was that sort of part of the plan on those late night sessions? Honest to goodness, it was not. It was not. It was all about we can build something that is going to change lives and we are hyper focused on that. So what changed? What what was the trigger that made you made you want to sell? Yeah, so fast forward now, right? We're we're full 8 9 years past those late night sessions around her kitchen table. And I'm doing the B2B business, right? 14 states around the nation and our customers who are the healthcare providers are coming to us just like they did when we were going to those conferences and they'd say across the table, yes, our patients, our moms and dads absolutely love this, but what if? I can totally see how wonderful this would be if we could really make it our own and tweak this part and tweak that part to really speak our language and share our message that we're sharing already with the moms and dads that we serve. And so now, uh, just most recently, this past year, I'm starting to collect feedback from my customers who are saying, hey, this product is amazing. It's working so well. In fact, it's exceeding our expectations. Our patient population loves it, and it's helping our health system in these ways. And what if the app that we're using today could speak to the certain risk 
stratified conditions, the risk conditions of pregnancy and postpartum. So for instance, what, when we've got a lot of gestational diabetic patients. And right now the app covers uh, really the, the healthy pregnancy. But what if we could do something with the app so that we can speak to the needs of the gestational diabetic mother? What if we could do something with the app that could speak to the needs of the uh, postpartum hypertension uh, problem that we're having and, and so that we can address that and do earlier intervention? You kind of lost me though. So my question was, what, like, what triggered the desire to sell? Because you guys were building this kind of mission business, mission-oriented business. So what is trying to serve diabetic moms have to do with the, the triggering event? Great. Thanks for bringing me back around. <laughs> so the triggering event was when I came back to my desk and said, they're right. We absolutely need to build toward these risk conditions. Well, meanwhile, there's a company in Washington, D.C., who for the past four years has been selling a product to OBGYNs, physician groups, healthcare systems, and hospitals in the pregnancy space that is built entirely around the risk conditions and the risk modules in, in pregnancy, essentially. But they know that they need to build towards this very um, highly emotive, patient-centric experience that we have. So the their app was really the clinical, the, the technical, it's for the OBGYN and they talk technical. Your app was really for the moms. And That's correct. Directly to them. That's correct. And, and so again, I, I go back, I, I get the strategic relationship. I understand that. But, but just personally, why not continue to run it independently? Why, like, why consider selling the business essentially. Yeah. So essentially after getting on the phone with them, with this other company in Washington, DC, um, they called me out of the blue and they basically said, Hey, we've had our eyes on you. We've been watching you. You have something that we know we need. We think we, we have something you need and perhaps we should consider a partnership. Uh, to which I said, a, a partnership, what are we really talking about here, right? Are we really talking about coming together? And at the end of the day, when I really sat and thought about continuing on on my path versus coming together with this other company, I my perspective was that the whole was better than the sum of its parts. And that bringing the two companies together into what I now uh, refer to as a, a blended family is would be a much stronger presence in the marketplace than if if we were to continue on our path that we were on. Right, but you went from the mission-driven mom with Amanda to like a like I guess ultimately you would you would become an employee of a of a bigger company, right? How did you That's correct. reconcile that in your mind? Yeah, that's a, that is a great question, John. So I had been the owner of the company. I'd been the founder of the company. I had been the boss, right? I knew everything that was going on, every reason behind every single thing we did, every move that we made. So there was a strong consideration from my side around what does it look like to become uh, no longer all of those things, right? And join up and, and in essence, just be an employee of a company. 
that said, in the negotiations, we talked so much about my background, my expertise, and what I could bring to the founding team of the new company. And so, yes, I am on paper and on the books an employee of the new company, but I am truly a member of the found, the founder team. They brought me into the founder circle of this company saying, look, we are bringing the two companies together on paper. It's an acquisition. In practice, it's more of a merger. And so Judith brings with her uh, that area of expertise or that subject matter expertise from the patient experience that they didn't have uh, before I joined them. How did Amanda react to the offer? Yes. So she had been out of the inner workings of the business for about four years at this point. And she had been acting with, with her equity stake that, that she uh, still had. She had been acting in a sense as an ad, one of my advisors, right? So I would bounce ideas off of her. She would give really clear uh, and concise feedback. And she'd do a tremendous amount of listening to me and helping to understand where I'm coming from and give appropriate uh, reflection and guidance. And honestly, when I said, hey, I'm, I'm really considering this. I, this seems like something that I want to do and where I want to move the company into. And she said, Judith, you've made all the best decisions to date. I trust you. And so even though it had a material financial impact for her, she l let you run the negotiations almost independently? Yes, that is true. Yep. Wow. Wow. And you just kind of said, hey, honey, I got I to check for you. Totally. Like, wow, totally. that's great. Totally. She, she put a lot of trust in you. That's amazing. Well, she, you know, and I think that's the beauty of the relationship that we continued to create and build upon since we had our, our founder split is that that level of trust um, was, was is so important. And so for her to say, Judith, honest, honest to goodness, I, you, you've made all the best decisions. You've got it to this point. So, you know, do, do go ahead, go for it and, and let me know. Now, I know Baby Scripts didn't reveal the deal terms, so we have to be careful uh, around that topic. What if you, you know, if you look at the entire sort of arc of the deal, so I'm, I'm not really referring to the entire company now, I'm talking about like once you'd sort of entered into that initial conversation with Baby Scripts, is there something that if you had it to do over again, you might change or do differently? That is a great question. Um, Gosh, it went really smoothly. We were in tight communication. So we had um, meetings that were happening every single morning, uh, very early in the morning, since they're on the East Coast, very early for me. But good news is I'm an early riser, so that wasn't too much of a trouble. Um, and, and so it, it went fairly smoothly. I mean, would, gosh, would I change anything about how it went? Oh, I mean, just the unknowns when you're negotiating, right? And you put something out there and then it sits out there for a while. I don't have control over this, but the what's, what's happening for, for you as a founder, right? On the other side, when you don't know what they're thinking, you don't know what they're going to come back at you with. You know, if, if I had some kind of crystal ball that would have, I think, uh, created a, a lot fewer gray hairs for me, perhaps. Um, but it's kind of like sending your child off to college, 
that's that's how I would think about it is it's now time for this child that that I've born and and raised to to go off to college and we're putting our college application out there and uh Let's let's wait and see what they come back with, and let's see if we really agree that this is a good fit. And I and I knew the whole way along that you know it might not be. It might come back at me that this is not the right fit at the right time, and that would be totally okay. Did you ever consider sort of shopping the business more proactively, getting getting other companies to bid on it in addition to Baby Scripts? So prior to their phone call. Uh, I was in conversation with a handful of other types of organizations looking at, do we go down the funding path, right? We had, we had taken zero funding to date, not a single dollar. So do we go down that path? Do we, um, there, there were other companies who were approaching uh, on the topic of acquisition. And so the, all of this was wheeling around in my head at the time of the negotiation with Baby Scripts. And the truth is that for many of those other companies, it was a little bit difficult for me to see the fit. It was, it wasn't, it wasn't just clear as day how we fit together. Now they were approaching because they they saw a fit and they saw a need to fill a gap in their businesses. But for me, it was like, yeah, we're, we're kind of, you know, working a little too hard to see how these things work together and what the go forward plan is. Baby scripts was the exact opposite. When they called, it was it was just clear as day to me how the two companies would fit together, how the two companies merged together would fit into the overall scheme of the marketplace, right? And 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 how we would grow together toward uh, our our combined mission toward helping to transform maternity care in the United States today. Well, it's a it's an amazing story, and I I'm grateful for you sharing it, Judith. What is the best way for uh, people to learn about? Uh, you, what Baby Scripts is up to, uh, the iBirth app, where, where would you send people to listening to this? Yeah, LinkedIn is a great spot. So I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and sharing lots of our media and the, the publications that I do uh, all on the LinkedIn channel. And I'm always happy to message with people and, and get to know folks and answer questions, all that good stuff. Awesome. So it's Judith Nowlin, but it's Spelt a little fun and a little differently than it sounds. So it's spelt N O W L A N, but pronounced Nowlin. Well, nope. It's a there's an I N O W L I N. Forgive me. Thank you for correcting me. Much easier to uh, to find as well. So that's great. Uh, on LinkedIn is the best place to reach you with Judith. Judith, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, John. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.